This episode of the Real Rescue Podcast is brought to you by SR3 Rescue Concepts because you don't know what you don't know. Life Saving Systems Corporation. We do our work so you can do yours. Tough gear for tough jobs. Breeze Eastern, the world's only dedicated helicopter hoist and winch provider. Have you taken a minute to reach out to Dave and Jason at SR3? Or what about Mario over at LSC? Or maybe Jimmy at Breeze Eastern? They're not only sponsoring this podcast, these guys are actually friends of mine. So if you have not reached out to them, now is the time. Heck, even call them just to get a t-shirt or a hat, sport their logo, and wear it proud. SR3 Rescue Concepts is a training company that can help you with your helicopter training, a standardization check, a safety check, or maybe just an audit or an annual FAA refresher. They are ready to bring your agency up to date with the current techniques, rules, regulations, and equipment. The training staff is awesome. With certified flight instructor pilots and experienced crew members, which I am happy to say that I am a part of, they offer training in rescue, medical, tactical, firefighting, ground operation, and night vision goggle use. SR3 has partnered with Petzl to assist with the personal protective equipment inspection course and the highly specific Lazard, which is used in helicopter cliff and mountain rescue, or like our guys over in Norway, who think outside the box, and they used it on a vessel that was pitching and rolling. SR3 Rescue Concepts goes beyond the helicopter world too. They also provide high angle rescue training and tactical medicine training. Contact them today at sr3rescueconcepts.com and follow them over on Instagram at SR3 underscore rescue. Then we have Life Saving Systems Corporation. They manufacture the world's toughest helicopter rescue gear. From my favorite harness as a rescueman, the Triton harness, to the rescue baskets and the litters, and of course the most popular hoist in all of helicopters, the D-Lock. The team at LSC cuts bends, sews, welds, and machines these products into existence every day. As they like to say, we do our work so you can do yours. Tough gear for tough jobs. Check them out today at lifesavingsystems.com and follow them on Instagram at rescuegear, at R-E-S-Q-G-E-A-R. And we have Breeze Eastern. Since the very first helicopter rescue in November 1945, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured superior rescue hoist solutions. While much of the technology and unique mission requirements have changed over the past 75 years, their commitment to us, the rescuers, and the operators, and those rescued, has not. Contact Breeze Eastern today by visiting them at breeze-eastern.com. That's breeze-eastern.com. We are lucky enough to have another guest coming to us from the Irish Coast Guard. It is awesome what these guys do out in Ireland. And the small group of people that make this happen is amazing in itself. These stories are just awesome. And I loved it. I can't get enough of these guys and what they do out there. I've seen stuff on social media recently that is like blowing my mind. They're doing an awesome job out there. So we get to hear a couple more stories from this guy in particular. So please welcome Mr. Davit Ward. My name is Jason Quinn. I am United States Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer number 500. 
These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. You ready? Over the moon. Over the moon. Let's do this. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Real Rescue Podcast. Today I have with me an incredible guest coming all the way from Ireland. And even better, aren't you like around Quinn, Ireland to make it even better for me? Absolutely, yeah. The address yes. is Quinn. <laughs> oh, you know what? What did you say before this, right? The best things come out of Quinn. I'm just saying. I'm just <laughs> saying. Now, that's not, at the national level in Ireland, that's not exactly the feeling, but certainly with the Quinn oh. lads, we all believe. Okay, Quinn okay. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce Mr. David Ward from Ireland, and you work with the CHC helicopters with the Irish Coast Guard. That's correct, yeah. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me, and thanks uh, to the Real Rescue Podcast for having me. Oh, yeah, David Ward, is my, yeah <laughs> David Ward is my name, yeah. I'm working currently as Chief Crewman Medical Standards for CHC Helicopters with the Irish Coast Guard. We have four helicopters nationally, um, uh, two on the East Coast and two on the West Coast. Um, what, my right, background... So Wait a minute, one of them's in Dublin. I know that one because we were talking to... Um, Derek, yeah. Derek, that's oh. right. Derek Everett, you know, and he was talking about being uh, the 115 being out of Dublin. Where are the other three aircrafts located? So we, we have 116 in Dublin, which is uh, where, where Derek... Oh, uh, sorry, 116. No, no, I get confused myself. It's okay, and there's only okay. four of them. <laughs> it's all right. And then we have Ward for then coming down onto the, the, the southeast coast. And then over in the west, then starting at the north, we have the Sligo base, and then um, we have our Shannon base, pretty much midway down the west point of Ireland. Nice. Um, and you know, we offer mutual support and overlap into different areas. Nice. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Well, uh, thanks for that. And, and so give me a little background. I'll take a resume. I like it. Okay. Resume. All right. I'm going to start feeling old now. Um, so <laughs> I, I don't start course in 1999. Um, as a young guy that was uh, in the army um, for a couple of years first. So I've over uh, 22 years on search and rescue with helicopters, working initially on an Alouette uh, tree helicopter, single engine, then a Dolphin, then on to an S61, and then obviously the S92 now. So yeah, pretty much more than half my life now I've been on, um, I've been doing search and rescue. Nice. Um, that's what I, often, what I often hear, which brings a smile to my face, is I think I have a, a greater fear of a day's work than I do of dying. <laughs> 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 22 years on SAR but, but um, yeah you gotta laugh but um, yeah so look about me um, I started in the um, in the Irish Air Corps um, but like I suppose the rest of Europe and I'm not sure what it's like in the rest of the world but certainly Europe made a move about 20 years ago to, to get away from military type search and rescue um, for various reasons including I suppose maybe commercial and I suppose a service, a service aspect I mean obviously the military are there to provide defence for the state so um, eventually then I made the progression into the Irish Coast Guard about 16 years ago now, um, which is great. I mean, you know, commercial SAR is a different thing to military SAR. It's, yeah. it's all about, you know, you know, service, uh, supplier service, um, and obviously, you know, I suppose value for the book for the taxpayer. So it makes probably more sense. I mean, I mean Europe's made huge changes. I mean, the UK no longer do it. Um, we don't do it. And the rest of Europe have all moved pretty much that direction. So, you know, so civil SAR, it's completely different than, than, than military SAR. Um, which is interesting, but it's, it's nice to have both backgrounds, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I'm working currently in the S92 out of 
Shannon. I have worked pretty much all over the country um, over my career. I was based in Sligo for several years on the West Coast as well. Um, and obviously then on the Southeast with um, the Waterford aircraft many years ago. Um, so, yeah, that, that's it. I've, I've pretty much, you know, uh, in terms of Irish SAR, I've pretty much worked on most of the aircraft that have been here. Uh, I suppose in the early 80s, there was a different type of aircraft that I, I didn't work on. It, it's interesting all the different aircraft bring many different types of, um, I suppose, challenges. Right. I suppose the one we're working the one we're working at the moment is the S92. And, um, Beautiful aircraft. I have not personally flown on it, but uh, man, it's that thing is a beast. Yeah, it, it is a beast. And you know what? It's got plenty in reserve in terms of engine power, capacity for, for crew. You know, you know, recently there, only last week, we lifted seven. I mean, that's that you fit them into a corner of the aircraft, you know. So, you know, I suppose I suppose the real point of it being there is when there's a tragedy, you send us out. So, I mean, having that sort of capacity in a cab is excellent. Whether you use it or not is not really the question. It's having the ability to use it. Right. You know, so if we had a big plane go down, God forbid, or we had a big ship go down, or you can do multiple lifts. We had um, our companies in CHC. We were involved in a, in a rescue a couple of, uh, I think, a year or two ago, where there was multiple lifts done, um, and I think a couple of hundred people were lifted over a couple of hours. So it's great to have that sort of capacity in the aircraft. I mean, obviously, the anti-ice is a big thing here in Ireland. The right. weather's pretty, you know, harsh around the winter. Um, so having, a, 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 you know, rotor ice protection is, is, is a fantastic um, um, capability to have in our aircraft. I, I know in previous aircraft, you might lift casually somewhere and have to travel literally low level around the whole coast of Ireland to get your centre of excellence. So you might lift on the west coast and you might have to either fly north or south and, and, and then obviously, uh, you know, circumnavigate the country, if you like. And we're only a small country, to be fair. So it's, you know, it's, it's not even the size of a decent state in America. So... <laughs> I don't know. I think it's bigger than where I'm from, Massachusetts. So I, you got me on that uh, one. Oh, uh, your geography is better than mine. I wouldn't have a clue. But um, yeah, so it, it's great. It's a fantastic aircraft. Now we can just lift, um, you know, take on the ice um, a certain amount anyway, uh, and head direct to our destination once we go high level. So it, it's an excellent aircraft. It's a pleasure to work in it, and, and hopefully we'll, we'll continue to work in that sort of type of aircraft for the future. Nice, very nice. So now, twenty-two years doing this job, I, I bet you've uh, you've seen some stuff. Yeah, I, I have. I'm, I'm probably blessed, like most people in there. I kind of compartmentalize it and can't remember any of it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> somebody tells me I was there. <laughs> <laughs> that well, very true statement, right there. Yeah, or like yeah, the rest I, of us, all the awards are in a box somewhere in the garage or the attic. You're like, oh yeah, that's yeah, yeah. <laughs> What I, what I would say, it's it's interesting. It's a great job. I mean, I love it. I'm probably fit for doing nothing else. Um, I suppose, you, you know, it's, what I have learned is, you know, maybe 22 years, you know, I still feel I'm very young and I've got a lot, lot to learn uh, on, sir. I think every day is a learning day. I think the day you let your guard down is the day, no matter how challenging the job is, I think if you don't bring your A game, you can get caught out even on the, the routine bread and butter ones. That's what I've learned. So, yeah. you know, never let your guard down. I think with 22 years in SAR, you know, I think you'll agree. I think anyone listening that's done SAR, with it, I've never done the same job twice. Nope. So, so you know, so you can't let your guard down. You can't sit back and say, I've got 22 years done. Um, because, you know, the bread and butter will nip you, nip you on the arse, pardon my language, uh, and catch you out. So, you know, what I have learned is, you know, don't, don't, don't fall into that, that kind of, I suppose, trap. Of yeah. thinking you know stuff you don't know i think what? you know you ultimately have to be alert even i found that the routine jobs actually training is probably one of the ones that can catch you out more than people realize yeah if you let your guard down getting into the monotony of the over and over uh, you know that is yeah. phenomenal advice and anybody out there that's doing this job if there's one thing you can take away from this in particular episode right now 
don't let your guard down. Like be on point every time, all the time. So yeah, just, absolutely. Yeah, totally agree. It's 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 when you think it's routine, it's the routine flight. They're the ones that you kind of make the mistakes. I mean, yeah. we're lucky, and I guess it's the same in, in in every SARA environment. You know, we, we brief if we have a chance to brief beforehand, obviously for a training mission, and certainly a brief for for a mission. But certainly our debriefs. Uh, what I love about this job is is the honesty in a debrief. I think you can gauge a guy in a debrief, particularly a new guy. Yep. I mean, it's all about humility. I think if you bring your ego in, you'll be you'll be the door will hit you on the way out. It's oh, just yeah. not suited for you. You know, I think humility is the big thing here. I mean, you know, I can tell you, you know, even last week I made a mistake. You know, I think we are you know, to what degree they're always usually kind of you know, thankfully small enough. But I mean, there's always learning points from every flight you ever do, and what I've learned is. Well, you might do a mission one way. There's, there's probably several ways to do the same mission and do them successfully. So it's you know, there's not my way is the right way, um, and I think that's what we've all learned um, over our progression of our career. Yeah, you know, I I'll tell you what, I, I appreciate you telling me that just now uh, that that you know you went out and you made a small mistake. You know, I'll, I'll be honest as well. In the last training class I was on, I uh, I rigged something up. It wasn't improper but it wasn't to the proper length and now i'm hanging too low below my patient and it was a training class but it was a mistake on my end and i owned it and i fixed it on the next lift but that's stuff that you have to bring to the table we debriefed that i said hey this is where i messed up you know there was nothing unsafe about it but it was wrong so good for you for bringing that up yeah it's interesting the two things you just said there that i picked up on one it was a training flight you know, yep. we just we just said, you know, it's the training ones that catch you out because it's routine bread and butter. You're not, your adrenaline isn't pumping. You, you haven't got that heightened awareness. You've nearly fallen into your routine yeah. and your routine will nearly get you out of it is what you think. So like I, I, what I've learned is the training ones are, are the ones that can catch you out more often than not if the environment or the weather isn't isn't challenging. Um, uh, yeah, and then you know that you owned it. I think that's really, really important because, you know, if you don't, you know, so, you know self-reflect, um, whether that be as a rescue swimmer or a winch operator or as a practitioner, um, providing clinical care the best guys I've ever came across are the guys who self-reflect you know yeah. come back ask the questions and ask them openly or even privately but you know reflect on everything what could, what could I do better you know um, and I think that's where you have to be at this game because you'll get found out otherwise yeah yeah you learn pretty quick didn't you? yeah <laughs> oh that's funny well uh, so now you get qualified, you get all your stuff. I'm going to move fast uh, forward a little bit and just ask you your very first SAR case. If you remember it, how did it go? I'm going to be really honest. I, I actually remember this one really well. Nice, <laughs> for nice. The, no, but I, it's actually for the wrong reasons. I'll tell you why. It just shows Aww. you the, the innocence of it all, right? <laughs> it was, I like uh, this already. This is great. <laughs> it, 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 it was around the 2000 mark, Um it was a trawler job. I was stationed in Sligo um, Airport part of the time with a, a Dolphin a helicopter um, working um, as, um, um, out of there. A car came in around uh, 2 o'clock in the day to, to uh, an injured fisherman who'd um, damaged his finger. Um, so we were told, look, we're on standby. Um, no, we're just double-checking. They might send us. So he says, great, yeah, look, no worries. Um, we got the call and... Um, we briefed it before we went on the mission. We kind of we kind of knew we kind of got a heads up. Sometimes you might get a quick heads up, say it's coming in. We're not sure if we're sending yet. So the the, the captain at the time um, looked at the weather and said, like you know, the weather's pretty ferocious out there in terms of a sea state. Um, so we went out anyway. Um, actually, I think the brief actually. What I remember very, I remember I remember in the in the, in the brief before we went out. Said, Look, we didn't have a dual hoist system in the aircraft, 
So we had a single hoist. So if there's a problem with the hoist, the brief was, and I remember the words very clearly, was David, you won't, you know, the, 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 the P1 says, David, you won't remember, you won't survive the fly in. It was 75 miles out. It was gusting 50 knots. So if you have a problem with the hoist, we won't actually, um, you know, generally for close by, we might try, you know, fly into land and put you down. It was, you know, you're going back 20 odd years ago here. You know, now we've all dual hoists and backup hoists and yeah. all that, but we didn't back then. But I remember the brief was, uh, bear in mind, I'm a young lad, you know, I'm fun of adrenaline, probably not as clever as I thought I was. And um, he says, uh, look, if we have an issue with the hoist, we will, um, we will, we will, um, we'll sever the hoist. So we'll chop the hoist and uh, we'll drop you down life raft and we'll get another helicopter out to you. Are you happy with that? <laughs> and you're and 75 going, miles offshore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 50 knot winds, you know, and life raft. <laughs> I, I like it was in the movie. I said, uh, yeah, yeah, over the moon. And everyone starts laughing. And I'm thinking, geez, I think I've signed up to the wrong course. You know, <laughs> you know I thought this was all flybys and high fives. You know, <laughs> but anyway, uh, I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. But anyway, so we, yes, yeah, so look, fair enough. That's the risk. It's an acceptable risk. Went out. It was an injured finger. And, you know, back then, you know, you're in the military. So, you know, you, you know, you're probably, you know, discretion, you know, back then, you know, it was, you know, go get it done, go get it done type um, kind of mentality. You're in the military. It's, it's the military ethos, let's be honest. Um, it went out. Um, I remember being in the hover. The windshop that was with me was a guy by the name of Dermot Malloy. And um, he was in the back with me. And I remember the captain um, uh, sitting on the right hand seat says, uh, as the waves were coming in, we come into the harbour next to the boat and it's pretty ferocious looking retrospectively now. But I remember the captain going, um, I says, uh, he says, uh, oh my Jesus, Jesus, watch it, watch it. You'll get swept off if you go down that. Be very, very careful. The waves are coming, the boat was crashing. The whole boat beyond the wheelhouse was getting washed um, with water. Um, <laughs> now, the severed figure in hindsight, a finger in, in hindsight, um, you know, you'd have to wonder was it, you know, could you let them steam in nowadays? Um, until it became, you know, it was severed a good while at this stage, so it was, it was not going to be, you know, a survivable limb. You'd, you'd attach it, but it mightn't work. So, um, yeah, went down, tried the highline technique, broke the highline, um, right, came back up, done another highline, broke that highline, thinking, Jesus, um, is this what I signed up for? You know, went back down, old <laughs> highline, what? Third highline worked, but I remember like twice or three times up before we went down, captain was kind of, oh my God, look at the sea. Jesus, Jesus, mind yourself down there now. You'll get swept off. And um, I remember Dermot Lloyd turning to him and saying, I don't really think David needs to hear this right now. Because it was nearly, he was saying it with emotion, you know, oh my, as it was coming in. And I, like, now, to be honest with you, I, you know, um, I was raring to go. But um, yeah, I went down to the third highline, uh, got the guy really, really quickly, got out of there, came back. But I remember the innocence of it all. Because I remember talking to the guy there, Dermot Malloy, the wind shop, and he'd been in the Navy. And I remember saying to him, now, this is my first time out to sea, you know, proper sea. Like, I, I had no Navy background, no boating background. Now, I love the water, obviously, and I've done scuba diving and all the usual recreational things. But, you know, I'd never been 70 miles offshore before. And uh, I remember talking to the guy in the Navy, Dermot, anyway, and I says, uh, hey, come here, can I, can I ask you, you know, in terms of, you know, sea state, was, was that bad? Because, like, I had nothing to gauge it from. You know, um, I, you know, do my training in Dublin Bay or, you know, a small bit of yeah. sea running and nothing significant, like maybe nine metres swells. Um, and um, he just looked at me and laughed, you know, in the innocence of it all. He said, like, is that, in this game, it's game of bad. He says, how bad was that? Like, was that, was that bad, bad or mediocre bad? Because I had nothing. And he goes, look, he says, that was not good. Remember that, <laughs> you know, that was bad, you know. <laughs> but uh, look, we've we done it. Um, you know, but it was funny, like, you know, um, we, we got, you know, we done it, we done it successfully, 
you know, in hindsight now with a bit more um, time under my belt, you know, would you risk would you risk your legs being driven up through your pelvis for for a, for a severed finger? Right. You know, uh, a boat that's pitching like really really high. Um, you know, you know, there's other ways ways to kind of catch. You could let them come into a bit closer seas or let the seas die down or, or whatever. Look, there's many options. Uh, um, no, we were happy to do it on the time, but that was that was certainly my first my first deck job. You know, and get, and bear in mind, you know, when you get out there, you know, if anything goes wrong, we're, we're cutting the cable and we'll send a life raft down. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for the backup. <laughs> you might as well just send me down a kettle. You might as well just send me down a kettle bell and I'll hold on to it. You know? <laughs> make, a, make a painless, please. But um, make, yeah. make sure you drop that bottle of whiskey in there too, boys. Yeah, that's it, that's it. But, uh, yeah look, that was the first boat job, and uh, I, I remember um, thinking, you know, came back afterwards. I look, look, you know, it was a great feeling afterwards. You know, I, I think at that stage, you know, when you do your first rescue and it's challenging, yeah. you're pretty much hooked thereafter. You know. Yeah. Um, you are to be fair you know um, I would have done 10 more jobs the following day like that if, if I had an opportunity you know because um, you are hooked and it is a thing that I think you know you're nearly there for life when you get in I don't know what it's like in the US but we, we, we kind of once you're hooked and you kind of most of the guys I'm working with I'd probably be considered a junior man on some crews you know um, wow. I'm working with guys you know 30 years plus you know average uh, on SAR you know so I mean um, yeah so that was my first boat job my first um, my first wet winch um was soon after if not before by a couple of weeks but it was in tremor um tremor bay and um you know because yeah, i suppose with sar there's so many different types of jobs and t- types of rescues you want to get you want to get a, a taste or a flavor of them all very very quickly you know whether it be you know we're covering a you know a, a body or you know you want to get that experience under your belt because you're, you're you're talking in the crew room you're listening to the guy's experience but you really need to see and touch and feel it yourself to, right. to understand so um, I remember doing my first wet winch and um, I got a call for a guy who'd, um, who was in difficulty in the water in Tremor Bay. Now to just explain the geography of Tremor Bay. So basically it's a big long bay. So it's a, bit, it's a bay uh, uh, with, with an inlet that runs behind the sand dunes. So when the tide comes in, there's a huge amount of volume of water that fills up. Okay. And then when the tide goes out, it obviously, but it's only a very narrow channel. So these two young uh, kids in their 16s, uh, 16 I think they were, um, got into the water, but they swam where when the tide was going out, they swam with it where this big um, outflux of water was going during the uh, the outgoing tide. So I mean, you you know, they didn't realise, um, and they probably hadn't gauged the tide. But I mean, n- no good swimmer would be able to swim against this, or you know, it was just from phenomenal body of water going out. So one guy made it to shore. Uh, the second guy obviously didn't. He raised. Uh, he he stayed in the water. The first guy raised um, uh, the alarm. It was actually myself and Derek, um, my colleague that was on your show there last yeah. week, was the winch operator. Derek I don't know if you, yeah, I don't know if he got a chance to mention it. So anyway, he did not talk along. about this one in particular. So this is this. You, you know, if you throw him in under the bus right now, there's nothing he can say about it. I just want to say, I throw that out there. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, come here, come here. I love that. I'd never throw him under, under the bus. He, 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 he's too much on me. But um. <laughs> But, but in fairness, no, no, his experience was great on the day. Um, so we come along anyway, we see this young fella doggy paddling in the water. So I winch down, I'm at a safe height. The sea's fine, there's no big issue with the water. Um, I can see him, I'm, I'm, I've got my, 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 my double straps there over my shoulder ready to go. Um, I'm looking at him, I'm pointing to him and I'm trying to get a kind of a gauge of what he's feeling. He looked fine, uh, which was very interesting. He looked grand, 
I was thinking, no adrenaline's pumping. I think, Jesus, this is okay. This is going to work out fine. You know, you've got that couple of minutes before, a couple of minutes, then a couple of seconds or maybe, you know, 20 seconds before you get to him. You're eyeballing him. He's eyeballing you. You're telling him to keep looking at you, you know, and you're maybe shouting a bit uh, to try to get his attention. But he was fully alert in the water. He was doggy paddling, as you'd imagine, literally just little doggy paddle. He'd been in the water probably a, a fair amount of time. I'd guess him probably. Now, we literally, it was pretty much at the end of our runway. We literally had less than a three-minute flight. Maybe, oh, wow. Maybe nice. a minute and a half. Oh, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, it made a huge difference. So, I get to the guy. And I put the straps on him. But just as I was about to put the straps on him, I'll never forget it to my dying day. He actually, his eyes rolled on the back of his head. It was like something out of the exorcist. It just, now, you know, it, kind of, it was kind of freaky to see. And he just expelled his air. And he sank in front of me. So, if you can imagine, like, five seconds before this, I'm thinking, this is okay. This is going to work out okay. I, you know, I can do this. This is going to work out grand. And I get to him, and I suppose he had this sense of relief that he'd been rescued. Yeah. But he literally had it about 10 seconds too early. Um, as I get to him, I'm literally about to put my hand on him. His eyes roll in his head. I guess he expelled his air because what happened was he literally just sank in front of me. Now, there's, oh. no way, there's no real way around like this. It's, it's relatively all right, you know, small ripple in the water, but nothing big. Next thing I'm, you know, what I'm explaining now is probably, I'll take about three or four minutes to explain, probably happened in the space of probably 10 or 15 seconds. Okay. But um, next thing I know, I'm, I'm the strap, a floating strap is literally on the water yeah. where he was meant to be. And his hair is just waving underneath by about six inches. Now, he, he came from a, a kind of an Amish type community. He, 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 very, very long hair, shoulder length hair, which okay. would probably be, no, I wouldn't say strange, but not all that common for, for young kids anyway. So um, I remember looking down at the strap. The water's pretty clear. And about six inches on the water, his head and his hair was waving. Thinking, Jesus Christ, what am I going to do? Just how did it go pear shaped so quickly? It was all going great ten seconds ago. But he also got a sense of, of, of relaxation that he was rescued, and yeah. he pretty much been at the tether of his ability to keep going. But I mean, I really could have done with him hanging on there ten seconds. So anyway, <laughs> uh, as you know, Jason, they don't always work with you. Yeah. But, um, so uh, I, I remember looking down and thinking, Geez, what am I going to do? You know, uh, and I could see his hair. So I reached down through the strap and grabbed his hair. And I, and I literally pulled him up, pulled him up as much as I could. I couldn't even get the strap on him. The strap was half on him. I was trying with one hand. I was literally, literally lifting him up with his hair. Now, I, I mean, he probably lost a few strands at the same time. And the strap, I kind of half got the strap on him. And I couldn't, I couldn't physically free up a hand to give Derek the thumbs up. So there's only a short amount of cable. Though. I, I'd say there was about 30 or 40 feet of cable out of even. Okay. And um, it was quite low in the Alouette. So um, it was a small helicopter, small length of cable, but it was the, the, the sea conditions were relatively fine. Um, but I remember like, literally nodding and nodding and nodding. I had a hand free to give him a thumbs up because one hand was holding his hair and the other hand was kind of half around the strap and half under his armpit. Derek lifts me up. We winch clear to a safe height. Um, and Derek obviously realizes that, you know, it, it wasn't going to plan. We never would have got the strap around him. Um, we literally lucky to get, get, him, uh, get him out, in, out of the water. Um, Derek literally at a safe height decides straight away his experience kicks in right let's not try recover this guy to the aircraft he would have just dropped to be fair um, yeah. and even he was bigger than me to be fair he was a young guy but he was only 16 but he was much bigger than me now bear in mind I'm about 5 foot 5 foot 8 and that's 5 foot 7 back home in Ireland by the way uh, <laughs> hey, that's 5 foot 8 on a good day I'm just I have my friends here shaking their head if they hear this but uh, <laughs> um, thinking I must be with shoes on but um so, yeah, so we, we, we actually literally fly, I'd say, 80 yards to the beach, put them down, land the aircraft, um, and then literally the two of us lift them up into the aircraft and bring them to uh, Waterford Regional Hospital. But it, it was just interesting to see how something that was going so well 
to literally the point of I literally touching him. He just he just sank like a stone. And and and, and I can put my hand on my heart and say that if he hadn't got long hair, he would have went to the bottom. There was nothing I could do. Wow. Yeah, Good. very interesting. And it, so, was, it was quite it was interesting afterwards. We got a call then um, you know, from you know the the, the doctor, the A and E consultant actually ran and if I remember right, Derek took the call. But uh, um, I remember um, his core body temperature had dropped. Now we literally had four minutes flying time to the um, to the um, to the Waterford Hospital. Um, his core body temperature um, we got told afterwards by the consultant because he wanted to get the full story from us because he couldn't understand it was twenty eight degrees. Oh, it was another wow. it was another great learning point because I don't know what the textbooks over there say now and um, um, and I know we often use Nancy Caroline here, which is an American textbook for some of our paramedic courses. But um, his core body temperature went down to 28. Now, generally, you should be clinically dead at 28, you know. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, you stop shaking around 20, or sorry, 33 ish. Um, and, and, you know, anywhere close, close uh, below that, you're kind of on the way out. But this guy's core body temperature now, um, not from a tamponic thermometer, from a, 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 a core probe, was 28. So I remember going to textbooks afterwards and going, Jesus, that guy should be dead, you know. I talked to the doctor. At the time, we were doing a week's detachment. So by the end of the week, he came back into us with his mum and gave us some scones and all that. Yeah. We got chatting to him. Oh, it was nice. quite interesting. Yeah, it was quite interesting. But we, you know, more learning though, we, we kind of asked him, he's you know, you, you keep fit. He was a lean looking guy. I think the previous week, as a 16 year old, he'd cycled 100 miles. Oh, wow. He was, he was super fit. And we got talking, you know, and we realized, Maybe it was because he was so fit, and, and, and obviously a few other factors in terms of uh, you know the environment and how quickly we got him, um, and how quickly he came back. That um, um, the doctor was surprised that he came back at all. You know, it was it was very interesting. You know, because uh, you know the temperature itself dictated that you know it was going to be a poor outcome, but it worked yeah. out great. To be fair, so, that's uh, awesome. Uh, and, you know, uh, let me. I'm just gonna throw this in for all my imperial friends. Um, 20 degrees Celsius is about 82 to 83 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, way below normal, like anything survivable level of a body temperature. So the fact that you guys, you, you got him out and got him to the hospital for rewarming man, solid job. That is awesome. Yeah. I, I think after that, I, I, I kind of made a few of my, I was always a heightened awareness when I was doing wet lifts when they were alive, you know, yeah. um, obviously bodies are probably well, less challenging depending on the environment they're in. But they don't, you know, um, but, but, you know, it gave me a great heightened awareness that in time I see a guy in the water now, you know, I'm ready for just about anything, you know, yeah. and if they get into this stuff nice and easy, you're actually surprised, you know. Yeah, I actually, uh, I was just talking to a friend of mine the other day. And when I was in Kodiak, Alaska, uh, one of the things we would do every year, we would do what's called the dry suit appreciation day. And we would go dive into the middle of the, uh, you know, the Alaska Bay there or the, um, uh, the Gulf of Alaska and without a wetsuit or without a dry suit, you'd go in a pair of shorts and you'd be in and out of that water. You'd be like, Oh, it's so cold. And you'd be like, yes, this is what everybody's feeling when they jump off their boat. And you, it just gives you that appreciation. So that's why we did it. And so, I mean, the fact, you know, you're like, Oh yeah, yeah. He's cold. <laughs> yeah. I, I know it's worth actually getting into a strop every so often. You use the rescue straps to use as well. I know you've got to ask. Yeah. yeah. I, I remember when I, when I first went into them and all that as a young kid, you know, you're, you're doing winch training or whatever, and you think I'm grand. But as you get older, you know, you think, geez, that pulls the back out, or that does this. Yeah. And I remember a couple of years ago, maybe it's my age, but uh, 
you know, it, it's great to get into a strap every so often and think, you know, this is what the guy is actually going through. Yeah. You know, particularly if you're doing it, we've got other options. We have a, an ARV, like an old bosun's chair type thing, so the harness we can put around them. Um, so, I mean, obviously you wouldn't use that in the sea. You have no place in the sea. But if you're going on a boat, a boat job and you've got a guy that's probably old, you know, we kind of wouldn't, wouldn't use the straps anymore because, you know, there's a far nicer, more comfortable way of doing it. We, uh, we use something similar. We use either the, um, so it's an AVED and ambulatory victim extraction device, or there's the, uh, it's made by C, the one made by CHC is the Bowman screamer suit. Um, something like that. It's basically just, it, it wraps you up. It's a full wrap and you just sit like a lazy boy sitting in the, getting hoisted up. It's one of the most comfortable pieces of equipment that I like, you know, for rescue side anyway. So. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I, I hear you. I, I think it's, and again, I think we're lucky, like we're quite um, progressive here. We do look around the world. Uh, we, we constantly change our equipment um, based on evidence as opposed to opinion. So we'll trial them. And if uh, the evidence suggests at the end of the trial period, we'll uh, certainly move towards a, a different piece of equipment, you know, which is which is great. We've, I suppose that's the great thing about uh, commercials are, you know, it's, it's all about mitigating risk. Right. Um, and they're very, I suppose, in civil side, you're very, you know, you, you can evolve very quickly, you know, in terms of equipment or procedures, you know, it's 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 all based on, sir, you know, um, the needs of the crewmen or, or, or the operation, whether it be the pilots or the engineers. Yeah, man, that's that's awesome. Good for you guys for being able to do that. You know, actually talking to Derek, uh, he mentioned to me that you guys have about 33, 35 guys uh, overall. Yeah, well, I think currently that's, that's probably the correct figure at the moment. We're looking, hopefully, to have probably about uh, 36 um, and probably even up to 40. Um, we're going through a recruitment process at the moment, um, nice. and we hope to take a handful out of that. But we just need, I think we need to take on an extra person um, per base is the plan, just bring it maybe to 10 people per base. Um, we're dual-rated crewmen, as Bobby Derek um, dictated, so you're a winch man or rescue swimmer yep. um, and a winch operator, which is generally, I think, you're a flight mechanic. And also we're the paramedic as well, so um, which is your corpse man or corpse person. So um, yeah, we're probably the three and one, probably more of a dying breed, to be honest, in terms of crewmen around the you know the world. Yes, that is a that's very true. There's a lot to get the the trifecta, as I like to call it, the hoist operator, rescue swimmer, and paramedic is is a slim to none. Uh, it's a very slim picking out there for something like that. So. Um, but, but, but what I have to say is, I mean, we spoke before and I think it's um, important to mention, I mean, I was a winchman for 10 years and, you know, I was pretty good. I was confident, you know, lots to learn still. But um, I remember when I became a winch op, I realized that I was actually going to be a better winchman because of it. Yeah. You know, in, in terms of understanding the winch ops needs, the aircraft needs um, and stuff like that, as opposed to just being tunnel visioned on my own um, area of, uh, of responsibility. So I think I think it opened up my mindset in terms of, you know, understanding the whole um, operation in terms of the aircraft hovering uh, and what the needs are up above and sometimes my meet needs might might be uh, secondary to theirs in terms of where i want to place the guy it might be easier for me but the chance of snagging the cable could be you know greatly increased for what my needs seem to be simple right no i totally agree and when i became a hoist operator as you guys like to call it a winch a winchman winch operator yeah. uh <laughs> i i have like my perspective changed a whole lot. Now the bonus part is by being on the end of the hook for so long. I was like, okay, I know exactly what he's experienced, you know, 50 feet below the aircraft. So man, that's pretty awesome. Um, the other thing I just kind of mentioned, you were talking about gear and, and training and whatnot and being able to adapt to new techniques and new equipment with only having really 30 guys. That's, that's like, 
I'm going to call it easy. I know it's not easy, but it is easier because you don't have to train 5,000. You know, you're yeah. not training an entire regiment, you know, and when you talk about implementing something new and training everybody to be able to do the same, that tends to either cost a lot, take a lot of time, or you miss people. And that's how things happen with you guys to be in such a tight group. I imagine that would be you implement a change and it's within everybody within what, probably 30 days. Yeah, I, I think um, my role um, is chief crewman for medical standards nationally. So anything clinical is my responsibility. Um, just to give you an example, we um, we, we looked at um, chest compression devices. Um, we looked at two. Ultimately, we done a, you know, um, a trial period on both based on our needs. And the evidence just uh, dictated that we would choose the autopulse um, um, chest compression device. Um, it fits in a 404 stretcher. It's a, it's, it's, it's a very simple device to use. It, it, but anyway, um, for me to roll that out, literally it took you know, nationally probably about four weeks to roll out for nice. everybody to train. You know, I, I, I train our four tra- trainers around the country and then they train the guys locally at a base level. So it was very, very easy to do. You know, and you're right, you know, it is a small number and it is a workable number in terms of getting progress done quickly. Um, that's not to say we don't have our challenges sometimes. Um, but, but yeah, yeah. In, in, in terms of numbers, it's, it's, it's a lot easier, man. That's, that's great. Like, yeah, yeah. Like another example of that would be, um, we, we were the first, I think in, uh, in Europe and certainly in, in, in Ireland, in the UK to use a uh, methoxyfluorine, the uh, Pentrox green, green whistle, which was, um, used, you see it on Bondi rescue. It's a little plastic kind of green whistle type thing. Oh, okay. uh, methoxyfluorine is the medication's pain relief. Um, that got licensed in, in, in Ireland, the UK, and um, the UK, it was a European license um, done in the UK. I spoke to the the people involved in the pharmaceutical company that got the license. We literally had it done and dusted before, I think maybe a year and a half, two years before the ambulance service nationally had it done. You know, wow. We can move very, very quick. Um, again, we're all regulated with the pre-hospital emergency council and with their blessing and obviously our medical director, we, we moved to to. to, to you know, use this drug, but it was very interesting because we'd be going to an A and E and we'd be handing in this, you know, just this green whistle, this plastic tube, if you like, that that, that they inhale. It's a great drug, um, and it works good. Most of the times I've used it. Actually, all the times I've used it, it's worked really, really well. Um, and next thing, the ambulance or the hospital staff going, "What's this? What, what are you doing?" <laughs> yeah, okay, we let had me, a little catch you up. <laughs> yeah. So, so we had this little card that was printed by the manufacturer just to let people know it was like an information card for either receiving hospital staff or ambulance staff. Um, and then, you know, a, you know, a year and a half later, everyone was using it. And it, was, it was no longer a fuss. But, but we could implement that really, really quickly. Again, you're talking maybe four to eight weeks nationally. Man, that's awesome. For like pa- patient care, uh, killing the pain. What else do you guys carry for drugs? Like for so, pain medication? Uh, so pain medication, well, well, so in, in Ireland, you have three practitioner levels. You've got EMT, yep. you've got paramedic, and then you've got advanced paramedic. Okay. So our contract, our contract is for paramedic practice. And we have recruited advanced paramedics, and I personally um, got our advanced paramedic license. So any of our, uh, uh, what we call APs, they practice at that level. Um, well, actually, we're, we're just rolling it out at the moment. So I think in an northwest base at the moment, um, they're practicing at a, at, a, at a higher clinical level. We have a few to roll out down the southeast. But but our paramedics is the standard required by the customer. Um, but we have done because of the austere environment um, that we work in, in terms of, you know, patients, uh, uh, clinical care. We are the only paramedics, to my uh, knowledge, that actually have morphine 
at our disposal. So it's a controlled drug, obviously, yeah. um, and we use morphine um, for pain relief. We are looking to progress into the likes of fentanyl at the moment. Um, again, um, you know, we'll see what happens or what comes out of that. But we are quite progressive. We're generally ahead of the pack. Oh, that's fin- fantastic. Forward. And I assume you guys are uh, holding all the standard ACLS drugs and PALS. All oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 I, I, could, I, could, I could read them all off you, but I'm probably boring no, you. No, 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 no. We, I yeah. mean, most, most, well, the, the general public may not know. So ACLS, the uh, advanced cardiac life support, that's all the drugs to when yeah, you have a I heart think- attack, but we're bringing you back. Boom, baby. <laughs> yeah, well, of course, uh, for us, uh, yeah, anything that yeah, the, the, the paramedic in Ireland would carry uh, in an ambulance, we'd carry. Um, in addition to that, we actually carry bronze syringe pumps and an Oxylog 3000 ventilator as well. On our oh, wow, nice. For, for inter-hospital transfers. Um, so, you know, but generally speaking, they're already on a vent anyway, but we have it there anyway, um, if, if they require it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's got to be quite... Yeah, so we are quite progressive in, in fairness, and we are always looking at things. Um, you know, um, so look, I, I think if you came back to me in years' time, I'd probably lift off, lift, list off another few things that we've done outwit of you know the standard that we're required to provide, Man, which is great. And, and that's usually working in commercial SAR. You know, I think you know, the, you know, CHC really understand the patient needs and are happy to progress based on you know on the patient's needs. So it, it's great. You know, I have to say that you know working with CHC now, sixteen years. And, uh, you know, you know, anything we've looked for in terms of patient care. I mean, I remember when we would look for the, ch- the auto pulse, the chest compression device, we'd literally come back from a, a vest, uh, I think it was the QM2, the Queen Mary 2. Okay. And um, it's a ship of the QE2. And we'd done CPR for, um, done CPR for about 55 minutes in immersion suits. Holy I remember getting, fuck. Yeah, I remember getting to A&E and thinking, treat me first. You know, don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> Well, all right. So, what was that call? They just a uh, like call comes in, heart attack. Yeah, it was just it was just a standard call, you know. Um, you know, um, in, in kind of an elderly patient with kind of clinical issues, and we we went out anyway. But long and short is uh, he he um, it didn't bode very well. But the chest compression device would have been a beauty to use there, you know. Yeah. But I remember that that was the crux of the, the case to put forward. Say, look, you know, it's it's not practical to to expect two guys to work to a point of physically exhaustion yeah. physical exhaustion you know you're wearing an immersion suit uh and our immersion suits are quite heavy when we're wearing a, you know a life jacket you know you're thinking holy god when you get to a and e you know think jesus what, what about me but, but um <laughs> you know i don't know if you use chest compression devices but i i, I know this is going to sound a wee bit odd but um i think the funniest phrase i heard when um and i don't mean to be um blasé or, or, or facetious um was you know when we done an arrest somebody said to me that that's the freshest I've ever felt after an arrest you know I mean it was literally like you, actually felt like you felt like you were doing nothing because the device works so well you're pretty much managing ventilations and and, and you know shocks and watching the, the monitor so wow. it, it's just frees up the physical activity you know yourself with a cardiac arrest yeah. of any sort it's generally very very physical buddy I, I'm with you man uh I have not personally used any of the the compression tools and whatnot but um I have done compressions for 45 minutes on, on my way back to land, pick some guy off, up off the boat. Next thing you know, you're, you're doing compressions. And when you have yeah. an aircraft with a bunch of people in it, you're like, uh, I don't really have room to move. So I guess I'm doing compressions for the next 45 minutes. <laughs> yeah. And it's tough going. It's tough going. If you've done it for more than 10, you, yeah. you know, sweat 20. pouring yeah. off your face. You, you're trying not yeah. to drip on the patient. You're trying to, oh gosh. Ah, and you, you know, 
and, and you know the real important aspect about it is while it does free up and, and you know you are you know you are working less in terms of physical activity it allows you as a crewman to go back to your responsibilities if you're doing a rest at night time you need your two guys down the back working the arrest now you've got a guy that can go back up on the screen and go onto the forward looking infrared system yeah. you know start backing up the maritime maps with the with the pilots you know it frees up in terms of offering well it, it, it's a huge benefit to the casualty you know um, and a huge benefit you know um a benefit to the practitioner in terms of not having to use you know physical exertion um but what it really does in terms of the SAR environment it actually frees you up to, to add that additional layer of uh, safety whether it be yeah. as i say going back onto the forward looking infrared system or or just generally having an overview of where we are and assisting the pilots in terms of you know yeah. it could be one of those dirty dirty nights where you know the, the, the crack isn't in the aircraft i think we all know what we're explaining when you know a dirty night when the fun isn't there anymore you, you're all at your heightened awareness state and oh, you yeah. feel you know <laughs> so, so when you, when you got that cardiac arrest while the patient is important the aircraft and the four people in it are more important you know right. if you're in that dirty environment where it'd be low level um and, and you know not a nice place to be and you want to transition out of there and you don't want to get like you want you know spatial awareness and assist, assisting the pilots in terms of spatial awareness is very important so it does free up one guy to go back and assist you know um and offer you know offer whatever what, what needs to be done up the front so yeah it, it's great it, which brings me on to you know i suppose one thing and i'd be interested to see your thoughts on this um you know about um good instinct what i've learned is right and, and i can say this for for certainty that i guarantee you in, and any of your listeners that good instinct isn't in any of your sops or any of your operational man <laughs> good uh, instinct we, baby yeah right. yeah you, you, you can't bottle it, and if you could, you could sell it for a fortune. But it's not in anything. It's not in anything written down in terms of operation manuals or SOPs. But it's definitely something I've learned to trust. You know, I I am on board with you, and I will agree with you to its fullest because there are sometimes that you get on scene or you're dealing with something, and you just you have to make that decision, that gut instinct. This is what we're gonna do. And you know, I've I've actually talked to other guys about it where. It's you see a deceased person in the water, you know, they're, they're not alive. Do you continue a search for possible get to, to find people that are alive? Or do you pick up the dead guy that you see right there? That is, that's a decision you have to make. And that, what's the gut instinct? Well, the guys haven't been out there long enough. They could be in the water. You know, they have a chance to survive them. Let's go get them. Uh, I'm on board with you. Yeah, I think me even effectively after a mission or something like that, um, if I look back and if I made a mistake, you know, a poor decision or a mistake or whatever, um, and I look back and go, what was my good instinct telling me at the time? And you go, oh yeah, do you know what? You know, so now I mean, I, you know, I, I I can honestly say I have no ego. I mean, um, I think discretion is the better part of valor. Yeah. If your good instinct is, look, you know, you're not going to get onto that dirty little trawler tonight. Um, it's just not going to happen. Now, I know I have the ability to get that guy on. You know, maybe seven times out of ten. You know, but if the guy has, you know, a minor injury that can, you know, we can either do later on or he'll, you know, he'll live um, and we can come back, you know, maybe a first light or when it's a bit brighter. Um, you know, why wouldn't you do it? You know, it's not not rescue at all cost. I, I think the question you have to ask yourself sometimes is it's not can we do it? It should we do it? Yeah. You oh, know? heck yeah. Wow. That, that's another great advice. Uh, wow. Dude, I'm so happy I talked to you today. I mean, for us, we've got a lot of high cliffs around here, and um, you know, quite often it'd be a hotspot for people jumping, uh, unfortunately. Um, and and the way the geography of the, the 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 cliffs are, you know, you just can't get a helicopter in there too easily. 
and you got to ask yourself and, and you got to be blunt about it you know you know if you've got a guy with a traumatic arrest okay so he's fallen from a height that's unsurvivable 700 feet you know Ooh. that guy's dead and now that's unfortunate but that's the reality of it and dead people don't come back you know Correct. survival to discharge from his cardiac arrest is probably 0 0.01 you know um it's very 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 low um so you gotta say you need to go in risk all the guys there just to get you know while it's very important and i i, I do really respect um you know uh, i suppose family members wishes to get the bodies back um if it's if it's doable and it's safe to do it absolutely no. let's do it in there yep. you know and it, it, it you it brings huge closure to the families um, I, I know they changed the law a couple of years ago that if, you know if, if a body wasn't ret uh, um, retrieved or, or, or um, returned um, you were lost at sea it would take I think if uh, now, I think it was something like you'd have to wait seven years you know in terms of you know insurances or whatever else now I, I know they've done away with that but in terms of the grieving process if you can get that body by all means get it but make sure you're getting it safely right. because you know you got to remember what you're doing there in the first place you know yeah, yeah you're, you're going to a body recovery yeah, and that's, absolutely. And you, that's, you know, that's a hard decision to make as well, especially as a crew. Uh, you know, like you said, how's the weather? You know, what's the waves doing? What's, you know, uh, the underlying effects? 700 feet. Uh, last time I checked, there's not a single hoist cable that's 700 feet. So. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I was just, yeah, I was just 300 feet with about 290 usable. Um, yeah, it's ours too. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, look, well, it would have to come into a low hover. And then what you've got is you've got nesting boards in there. And you got to think, you know what, is there a better way of doing business here? You know, look, you know, let's come back in a while. Let's, let's, let's put a boat out. Let's see. And you know, a boat might be the best option too. I mean, right. if you wait a while, it might just float, uh, you know, it could float out and make it really, really easy just to go down and get it, you know, but I, I think, you know, you've got to be mindful of, um, you know, what you're there for. Yeah. 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 A lot of things they, I, you know, I hear, uh, more, especially on the civilian side of things is, you know, and this is unfortunate. And for anybody that's listening, it's, it's not the total mentality, but you have to understand where we're coming from. And that is their emergency is not our emergency. We're here to help you and we will come get you. But because you're in an emergency, we're not, and we're not going to put ourselves into a position to get ourselves into an emergency. When now you have two emergencies, this is not going to happen. We're here to help yeah, yeah. you and we will come get you in every aspect that we can safely. Totally agree, Jason. Yeah, it, it is. You know, and I suppose for us, you know, working in a multi-crew environment, which is brilliant, you know, it, it, you know, it's, it's, you know, if there's any doubt, there's no doubt, you know, so if the co-pilot is not happy, if the captain's not happy, if the wind shop, you know, if there's no, you know, unless we can, you know, war gamers or talk it through, um, you know, what, what I find interesting working in a multi-crew environment is generally, somebody puts out an idea somebody else makes it slightly better somebody else pokes a hole in it and then somebody else makes it slightly better again and it's a great environment to walk in because you know i suppose i've never had an original thought in my life what i like to say <laughs> i got probably a nice way of saying it but you know in a, in, in a crew environment it's great because you know when there's no ego involved and, and it generally never is you can go oh i think we'll do x y and z but no doubt that's not no that's not no we won't do that because of this i fair enough you know, um, so so it's great. You know, and when you've no when you've no ego, you don't mind being told. Look, that's not a great idea. We could tweak it and do this and make it better. Go, yeah. Hey, it's all for the safety of the crew and effect uh, doing an effective mission. So it's great working at that kind of high high octane professional level with a multi crew environment. And you know, as I said, once you do your first job, unfortunately, you're probably hooked. Yeah, yeah, 
Oh, I, I've been I've been hooked for 20 years. I can't get enough. It's terrible. This is why I do this, so I can live vicariously through everyone else now. <laughs> you know what? It's great. I'm looking forward to listening to, to some of the other podcasts. Um, but, but again, you know, um, for me, you know, I would say training is where I found I find sometimes the biggest risk can be when you're when you're training with equals as well. So you know, um, you can kind of relax, and it's when you ever so slightly take your foot off the gas. It come back and bite you. So I mean, if you take nothing from this, you know, just just slow it down when you when you think it's going well. It mightn't be, you know, so, or, or or could change very quickly. So you know, uh, you know, you you you've done the job. You know what I'm talking about. It's 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 a fantastic job to do. I like to think that I'm blessed and privileged to be in a position. Um, you know, and um, one to be successful in doing it, and two to actually be healthy enough to still do it, which is great. Yeah. Well, you look good doing it. So I mean, you know. <laughs> It again. I, I couldn't hear. You. I said you look good doing it. So I mean, you got that going for you. Hey, well, look, look. You know, they say the camera puts on about three or four pounds. Oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm, a lot, I'm a lot slimmer in real life. <laughs> oh my gosh, man, you kill me. Well, uh, what else? Uh, you you've mentioned a couple other big rescues that you've done that kind of stand out to you. I, I would love to hear at least two more because I I know you've had some gnarly stuff up there in the North Atlantic. So, well, we, I, I tell you another job which was great as well in terms of um learning outcome. I remember we done a job up in the north in Loch Swilly. It was a crabber coming in and winter's nice. No, I mean it was coming down 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 into Loch Swilly. So the water was relatively. No, it wasn't a huge seas by any means. And um, they 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 they'd set their pots. They're coming back in for bait, and they're going to go out and rebait a load more. Um, what happened next was, uh, you know, um, they they crashed into into the side of a cliff and got lodged on a kind of a rock. Um, a trawler. I must actually, I can I'll forward you on a picture if you wish. But, um, yes, please. <laughs> so it was very interesting. So we get the call anyway out of Sligo. Um, uh, as a crew, we launch. We come alongside. The the boat is actually probably about, about 15 feet away from the cliff edge. It's a small trawler, um, and uh, it's actually sat upon a rock. So crashed. It actually, it was actually sitting on top of a, a, a big rock as well. So you could actually see it kind of listing left and right ever so slightly. So we came along. It was pitch dark. Um, we were in the S61 helicopter at the time. Um, the wind shop was a guy called Gavin Playle. Um, me and Gavin had trained together um, in our initial star training, and I was the winch man. Um, uh, and uh, we come along anyway. And, and the way it was, it was in a precarious position, and it was it was a dirty night. And I remember Gavin saying, "I can't see the tail. Like it was that dark, we couldn't see beyond the tail. If that makes sense, so we wow. couldn't clear the tail to move in overhead. Now to effect a mission, even with a high line, we had to go in close enough to the cliff that we could have actually contacted the cliff." So we sat in the hub and we said, look, you know, so he's not happy as the winch operator. No one's going to talk anyone that's not happy into something, doing something they're not going to do. So we, we kind of, we moved out to the left a bit. We, I remember getting on to uh, check the tides. We realized the tide was going out. So they were sitting on a rock. The tide was going out and it was only going to, you know, it was going to get safer. If we waited three or four more hours, uh, we were going to get first light. We just couldn't physically work out the, the, the geography of the cliff, um, but we knew it would have to get really, really close. And when you couldn't see it, we just couldn't be certain and we didn't have envies, uh, night fishing goggles. So we um we said, Look, the tide's going out. There's a Coast Guard team on top. We can go to the nearest airfield, which wasn't too far away in Carrick Finn and Donegal. We can sit there until literally we can we can replan to be back there at, at sunrise, which is about three and a half hours away. So literally go back, get a cup of coffee or two, 
and go back out. If the situation changed in terms of got more precarious, we could go, we could launch straight away, be there within 15 minutes. Nice. Uh, but we literally couldn't, we couldn't get there. And I want to send you the picture, you'll understand why. Um, but we got there about three and a half hours later. The tide was obviously going out. So it was always getting safer. Uh, well, we would hope it would always get safer for the boat because we realized that the rock that we were on, which we could see because we could shine our torch on it, was quite um, quite large and they weren't going to come off at any time soon with, with, the, with the, um, the tide. So we came back about three hours, three and a half hours later in uh, sunrise and um, they were still there and it became much clearer that you know, we were never going to do that job at night time without understanding fully the dangers around us. Um, so we highlighted, I think, seven guys off in the end. What? Um, yeah, I, I'll send you the before and after pictures. When the tide came back in, it washed it and it just sank on its spot. Oh my gosh. It, it was actually interesting, but it just shows you not to rush in. You know, we, we could have probably done it, but we weren't certain it was, you know, it was safe. So he stopped everything, slowed it all down, says, look, let's think about this logically. They're all safe right now. While it's rocking a small bit, it looks all right. We can see it's lodged quite high onto a rock. If the tide is going down, there's a good chance that that might just stay there. Uh, and it did. And we said, look, it, no, we don't have a carte blanche on good ideas um, or something we can't read into the future. So he said, like, it could change and, and we're ready to respond if it did change. But right now we need to be certain that we can get in. Um, and uh, yeah, the p- pictures was paint, 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 paint a picture better than I can describe. But uh, yeah, we came back, we done it. It was it was relatively easy. Highline seven of them off, um, and, and off we go. And um, there was a great photo there taken in the aircraft. There was one guy not smiling in the photo. Was probably the best way to say it. Um, <laughs> Man, wow! Dude, yeah, that's it was awesome. Yeah, but even like to see that you know within six hours of a completely different. But you know, it's it, when you think about it, we had no, no no one person had a great idea. There was the whole crew, and um, it, you know we sat down. Oh, sorry, we sat. We we went out to a safe area. We hovered uh, adjacent it. We sat and we discussed it. What's our options here, guys? Oh, I think this. I think that. I think that. Right. And we formed it. It was it was it was a, it was a great moment because everyone had input into it. And we oh, came nice. out with the decision in the end. And I mean, for me, that probably epitomizes Sarah when you got four great guys working in tandem together to make a, a, the right decision. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, man, that is brilliant. Gosh. Dude, I want another one. I want another one. Come on, baby. I'll have to get a box of tissues if I remember any more jobs. I usually <laughs> don't remember them. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, we, we got a call from um, our Sligo base and... Um, it was kind of kind of a strange call. It was different than a normal calls in terms of the controller was talking to us, and it was kind of it was kind of we, they wouldn't give us the name of the vessel. Not that they wouldn't give it; they didn't have the name of the vessel. Um, but it was a, a, a British military kind of vessel. We're told, but we were told quite clearly was to call it surface vessel. Was the only words we were allowed to we were told to use surface vessel. Um, we got out there. I was a good bit way out west. Um, we were given a, a, a lat long uh, uh, to RV, so a rendezvous point, a rendezvous, a rendezvous point um, at a specific time, and the vessel would surface. We kind of we worked out it might possibly be a submarine at this stage when they said the vessel would would appear for us. So, um, but nobody was really saying like I think it was more on, on the UK side. It was probably a bit more hush hush. We wouldn't in Ireland. We don't have any submarines. We have a handful of boats, and we're actually we're not a, we're, you know we're a defence force. We're not exactly a. a a military uh, in terms of uh, uh, we're neutral yeah so um we, we went anyway it was very interesting so there was a, a trawler in our way and we we're trying to get the trawler um directed out of the way of our rv point he was trawling directly towards it 
he wouldn't actually come on the radio. We called him several times. Now, this is just like, you know, sunrise at four in the morning or something like that off the West Coast. And uh, we keep calling. We, we, we zoom in. We get the number. We get the... Um, we get the uh, identifying name of the vet, the trawler that was going to be in our way. Um, it was within about two or three miles of us. Um, wouldn't answer, wouldn't answer. There was, a, I think it was a Nimrod from um, from the UK um, doing, doing top cover for us. We are having this big issue with this, this trawler that wouldn't communicate with us for whatever reason. Now, that could have been genuine. They couldn't have heard us, whatever. Um, and um, what, uh, what happened next was the, um, the, the fixed-wing aircraft that was doing to- top cover flew really really low now we, we tried to raise them about five or six times we got different methods we got our our controlling station back at base uh, the coast guard to actually try contact them on channel 16 we've done loads of ways we couldn't raise them anyway for our finish then um the the the, the nimrod if i remember correctly um flew at low level and i to put it mildly he woke them up um and um then we established comms with them and said look you're in the middle of a, um, a, a rescue um you're in the vicinity of a rescue and it's about to be conducted. Could you vacate the area immediately? They did, in fairness, respond, but it took about 20 minutes to get them to, 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 to listen to us. Um, uh, <laughs> other than Nimrod, Nimrod um, I think they flew low and close, and I think yeah. they woke them up. But um, then out of, the, out of the blue, then, um, this submarine um, appeared from, um, from underneath the water, and um, I actually have some footage of it. Um, I'm no submarine expert, but the conning tower, I'm guessing it's probably about 30 or 40 feet but when it rose and it was wallowing i mean at one stage the wave actually broke over the um the conning tower of the um the submarine now wow. uh, when it came up the water wasn't it wasn't too bad it was rough enough like but it wasn't too bad um and it was very stable once it came up i just think when it initially broke surface yeah. and disrupted all the water there was this huge wave that came over and oh jesus christ um but uh, and then i mean i might be small but i'm probably as wide as i am small and there was a small hole there as well. And I'm thinking, so again, I'm no engineer. But I was walking out the mat there. Am I, the, am I the right man to go down here? I could get stuck. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so they, they surface anyway, and they, they get their, their, the deckhands um, to, to assist us with a high line. And basically high line right into the, to a probably about a, a two and a half foot by two and a half foot hole in the top of the conning tower. Went down into the submarine and uh, assessed the guy that was down there. And, um, and actually, yeah, he was, Pretty, he was pretty stable to be fair. He just had a kind of a, you know, probably some sort of a medical issue, uh, and um, winched him out there. And actually went. Do you know what? It went very, very smooth in the end. But the Highline boys came back in. But well, there was some great footage that came out. But it just shows you, you just don't know where you're going to be. You go to you work. You never know where you're going to get to. Yeah, yeah I spend. I think we all spend loads. Of time, yeah, we spend loads of time looking at what we're going to eat for lunch or dinner. We know it's like an old folks' home in there. Um, <laughs> you, know, you, you, you bring in your sandwiches or whatever, and I think Jesus Christ, you could be. You could be, you know, not eating for 12 hours or you could be, you know, you could be having lunch in the south of Ireland and you could be having dinner in the north of Ireland. You just don't know where you're going to end up. Just, you don't know. No, no, it's great. Look, it, that's why we do it. It's great. And it's, I suppose it's, it's, it's a pleasure and an honor to be able to. Dude, that is awesome. Oh, I love it. Man, I love it. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that one. That, that's pretty gnarly. Yeah, no worries. You're more than welcome. Uh, yeah, look, you know what? 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 It's fast and wonderful, isn't it? It is. It is indeed. <laughs> oh man! You, uh, you know what? You mentioned something offline uh, about a fire. Some something where you had a fire, a boat on fire, or something like that. 
Oh, yeah, I've done a few wrestles when they go on fire. Um, oh, man, come on. You're killing me. This is great. It, it, it's, never, it's never very nice. Actually, I'll tell you, I'll tell you um, probably a, a, a lighter-hearted um, one. There was maybe a couple of years ago, maybe about geez, 15 years ago, 16, 17 years ago, there was, um, there was a game show. It was a TV program. And in the infancy of, of reality TV, um, Irish Television launched this program um, it was called Cabin Fever, where it put these kind of contestants onto a onto a yacht and it'd sail around Ireland and it'd be like a TV show flying the wall type thing. Um, and ultimately, when they went up towards Torrey Island up on the northwest coast, um, they crashed uh, into a sandbank. It was a wooden hull vessel. Um, it was very interesting. Um, and and I, I mean, I wouldn't have an engineering background, but I kind of am a logical thinker, I'd like to think anyway. With wooden hull and there's no sealed compartment. There's only really one option over a period of time, you know. Yeah. But um, you know, went down onto the boat and brought down a pump. Uh, and I said to the guys, we brought down a marine pump to pump off the water. I looked down the the stairwell and you could see the water was floating up. You know, by two steps left that I could see visibly. Oh and man. I said, look, you got to abandon ship, you know. Um, and uh, no, 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 no. It's look, I'm no engineer, but unless you've got sealed compartments here, this ain't refloating. And I think I think you know I suppose I could mention another four or five jobs that are similar to this. And at the point when, you, when you're talking to a crew and they're in denial, whether it be a casually, you know, I've had it with guys, jet skiers in the water, when, when the jet ski conks out and they're drifting offshore and, and there's nobody else to come. And you're having these discussions with the guys and you're saying, like, look, and you're trying to be nice and say, look, there's one outcome here. Um, and you have to, I suppose, choose your words carf- carefully and explain to them. It says, look, I'll let you try. And it's important not to be too, you know, it was very safe. I said, look, this ain't refloating. This is going down. It's a matter of when, not if. Yeah. Um, and um, you know, look, we'll go. We'll go back into the hover. We'll wait for you. And sometimes there's a bit of pride involved. You know, I mean, coming to terms with, you know, your vessel is going to sink. You know, there's pride, possibly ego. I don't know. Um, and obviously, you know, reality might, you know, shock. You know, they could be in shock. Um, and you know, just sat in the hover. And um, yeah, ultimately, they we said, look, we advised them. We got the coast guard to advise them. And then you let them come around to your way of thinking very soon before it gets dangerous. And you say to them, look, I think you need to abandon ship. And they go, right, fair enough. But we do it when it's still safe for you to do. If not, then you have to go down and you have to make the tough decisions and say, look, you got to come. You know, yeah. And yeah. it was interesting. I got another job um, north of Mullockmore um, in Sligo many years ago. And it was around shift handover time, which is never. <laughs> I think the guys listening will probably laugh if they're doing sir. It's never a good time to get a call. Let's be honest, right? Yeah, right. And when it's shift changeover, and you're like, "I'm going yeah, up." Yeah. No, you're not. I don't think <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you're looking out the window like a lost puppy, waiting for your owner or your your, your handover crew. Um, uh, but uh, you know, um, so uh, you, you got a call anyway. It was um, the back of eleven meter seas, so that's probably you know thirty yard, you know, oh thirty five feet. Yeah, uh, yeah. 35, give or take 35, 33 to 35 feet. Yeah. Good these, Lord. These, these guys were surfing and they were big wave surfers, which is fine. You know, it's great. There's a lot of it around here. And um, the problem was um, the, it was the local inshore boat would have been above their launching limit. You know, so a small little D-class would have been above, above their launching limit. So the next boat was, was, was probably about a half an hour, 45 minutes away in all weather lifeboat. And um, so that was never going to get there in time. We come into the hover. This guy is drifting towards your home state um, at, at, a rate of about, uh, at a rate of about 25 knots. And he's waving us away, his jet ski and the waves. He was actually towing out surfers for this wave DVD. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, and they were doing a DVD. So we came along seeing it was this fantastically uh, big, nice jet ski in the water that he was holding on to. 
and swimming forward at the same time. And uh, it didn't, uh, he couldn't really see in terms of spatial awareness. You probably don't see that you've been blown out to sea at a rate of 25 knots. We could see, we were, we were hovering backwards just to keep up with him. And, and the gentleman was waving away. And then we're going down. And I suppose, again, you know, he was reluctant to come, which is fair enough. He thinks he's going to make it back. And um, uh, it was actually interesting. We um, actually, I got winched onto the jet ski because he was actually in the water. Hold so on wait, to the jet wait ski. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Time out, time out. Are you telling me that his jet ski like stopped working and he was going to swim the jet ski in in like a 25 yeah, so, knot current going out. Yeah. Yeah. And he probably didn't realize it. Fair to him. And, um, <laughs> so, so, uh, you know, you, you're going down and I, I, I got, I, I said like, look, you could winch me into the water. And then, we're, you know, as you say, as you know yourself, when you're in the water, you're both struggling to kind of keep upright and, and, and all that. But the jet ski was a two seater jet ski. So I said to the wind shop, any chance you could put me onto that jet ski? Yeah, no problem at all. So I sat in the jet ski while I was talking to the guy, shouting at the guy. To, and when I say shouting, I mean verbally just talking loud as opposed to actually shouting at him. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, trying to communicate and said, Look, you got to come. He goes, No, no, it'll be grand. And I actually explained, Look, you're heading to America. You just don't see it. <laughs> and you probably don't have your passport with you, so they're not going to let you in. <laughs> and um, I said, like, Look, but he didn't see it. And again, you're going through this phase of, you know, is it shock? Is it denial? Is it, you know, the reluctance? And um, I said, Look, I was a bit blunt with him. I said, look, I can come out in an hour's time, but you won't be paddling, you know. I said, the boats can't launch. And I, you know, I'm trying to scream over the blades to try and communicate to him. And ultimately then, he kind of, he's, he's seen sense and no problem at all. I think it's just shock. I mean, if it happened to me, I'd probably be in shock. I've often thought about it. You know, let's be honest, no rescue swimmer wants to get rescued by a helicopter. Right. Last ring. You know, I'd rather crawl home with a yeah. broken leg than get rescued. So, I mean, if you take a small pinch of that, and translate it to an ordinary kind of casualty that's not rescue involved. Um, you know, you can you can understand why they're thinking like that. But I think for us, that's the challenge is just to, to do it in a nice way to understand, for them to understand, you know, the reality of the situation. Man, dude, that's awesome. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you for, you know, saving him before you get to America because then, yeah, then the U.S. Coast Guard comes out, hey, how you doing? You got yeah. a passport? <laughs> Yeah, probably a different response. Yeah, but look, you know what? It was great because we actually we, we got chatting about it afterwards, and he said, "Look, yeah, thanks very much." You know, I suppose you, you know we've, we've seen it yourselves. You know, people are worried about the possessions, whether it be a, a surfboard which I've had. Uh, yep. You know, we can't winch a surfboard; it just gets too dangerous. So that's refused to come to me, come come with me winching wise for that. Um, jet skis as well. Nobody wants to leave the jet ski or the canoe. And you got to explain, look, lads, it's it's possessions at the end of the day. Whether insured or not, not really important. Yeah. You know, you well know, and the guys listen well know, we deal with life and death, and, and it's a fickle decision between either. You know, it, it's one little poor decision away from being debt, you know. Uh, and for me, possessions, you know, I wouldn't give it a second thought. You know, I had one guy that didn't want to leave because he wanted to bring his guitar with him uh, off a boat. Uh, I, I can't be like, you know, I, I couldn't bring it, you know. Yeah. And uh, I can't bring it. You know, the chances of me. You know, one, it could interfere with my gear in terms of the QRF or the quick release harness that we have. Um, two, it becomes a sail and then it obviously becomes a spinning hazard. Yep. And it's a guitar. It's an actual guitar. I don't care. And I don't care if it's signed by Eric Clapton himself or Bruce Springsteen. Couldn't care less. You know, yeah. we can cut that part out and bring the signature. But yeah. long and short, yeah. it's a guitar. And it's going to pose a risk to me and my family and you and the operation. Well, it ain't no decision to be made. You know? No, it's not coming. Yeah, man. Wow, dude, I cannot thank you enough for coming on today. I, I have taken a ton of your time already and I have just enjoyed every one of these stories and these conversations. Uh, man, it has been a pleasure, an absolute pleasure. 
Well, well, just on that, Jason, thanks very much. And, and thanks for doing what you're doing because, you know, it's great to, 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 to integrate um, whether it be rescue swimmers or winch men from around the world. It's great. I think we have a commonality. You know, we want to, um, we want to do right by people. And, um, you know, we, we, we want to continue to professionalise and be the best that we can be. I, I'll leave you with a great statement that uh, an Irish poet, I don't know if you know him, Seamus Heaney, he's from a, a county dairy in Northern Ireland. Okay. He has a great quote. I think it's an apt quote for this kind of um, podcast. And it goes something like this. Even if the hopes you started out with are dashed, hope has to be maintained. I think it's a phenomenal quote when you think about Sarah, you know, you get out there, whether you're searching for, you know, you're going getting called for a boat that's going down. Next thing you start seeing equipment floating, you know, you got to maintain hope. You know, we always kind of try to be positive and say, look, we're going to get these guys. We're going to get them alive. Now, look, we're realists at the same time. But hope has to be maintained. And I think that quote is very interesting for both the rescuer and the, 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 the rescuee in terms of, you know, if they hang on, you know, and can continue to maintain hope, you know, there's a good chance that there could be, you know, a survivable outcome. I like that, man. I like that a lot. Heck yeah. Oh, that, you know what? I'm going to quote that and I'm, I'm, that's going on Twitter or Instagram or all of it. That, that right there. <laughs> Well, any consolation, I'm not that techy, uh, uh, clever. I don't have Twitter, so you'll have to send me a screenshot. You got it. <laughs> well, Jason, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I'm looking forward to listening to your podcast. Keep doing what you're doing. And yes, uh, it's great to be integrating uh, our profession. Uh, Mr. Davitt, thank you so much for coming on. I, I cannot, I really, I cannot thank you enough. You guys are doing a phenomenal job out there in Ireland. And I love all the stories. I, I'm looking forward to the next conversation I get to have with you guys. So... Awesome. Well, look, hopefully sometime we can meet up in real, yeah, for real. Maybe Paddy's Day in New York. Uh, tease me with a good time. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Hey, good pleasure. All the best, Jake. All right, damn it. Have a good day. And ladies and gentlemen, with that, we are out of here. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Real Rescue Podcast. Please take a minute and like my daughters like to tell me, like and subscribe. Oh, yeah. I'm pulling jocks and taking off. But before I go, if anyone out there has a rescue story that they would be willing to share, I would be humbled and honored to have you as a guest. Or if you have any questions about any of the rescues or anything else that we talk about here on this podcast, send me an email, therealrescue at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q at gmail.com. You can also check us out on our Facebook and Instagram page at The Real Rescue. That's at T-H-E-R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q. I also want to give a special thank you to all of you standing on the watch today. Always remember that when that SAR alarm goes off, those in distress are praying for a miracle. They are going to get you. Until next time, fly safe and swim hard. <laughs>